Are you ready? It's time for the Hammered Sports Podcast. You heard it. It is time for the Hammered Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Gray, here with my co-host, Tom Abbey. Cheers, everybody. Absolutely cheers as we record our latest and drunkest session, I would say, of the Hammered Sports Podcast. To date, yes. To date, yeah. That could always change. Stay tuned. We'll see what happens next week. Week to week, things could get weird. We'll see. We are uh, not only recording on a Tuesday night, a Tuesday night where we're enjoying a lot of adult beverages. I'm on vacation from work. No reason to get up in the morning. Uh, We've got a couple of guests in studio watching us record tonight. Our buddies Josh and Dan are here hanging out. What's up, guys? Dan is responsible. Dan is responsible for our new intro, our intro music. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's the one that recorded that incredible guitar track that you hear when we start the podcast each week. So um, we're all enjoying the beverages. These guys are going to be here in the background while we, uh, you know, make the sausage, so to speak. Hey, Tom. Yeah. Stole my line. Yeah, it's not your line. That's everybody's line. All right, Tom. What are we doing tonight? All right, we're going to talk a little bit about the PGA Tour last week. We're going to preview the Workday Charity Open this week. Then we're going to roll right into the Group of Five and Independence preview. Uh, That should be very entertaining. Uh, Then we're going to play Name This Player. Kevin puts me in the hot seat this week. And then preview the huge, enormous UFC 251. Fight Island is finally here. We're going to talk about that. I like to say Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Just makes me think of arm bars. Yeah, fair enough. Which is fair. So, we kick it off tonight recapping the PGA Tour event from this past weekend, the Rocket Mortgage Classic. And now is our opportunity to brag a little bit, right, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. If you were uh, listening to us last week to make some wagers, you did pretty well this last weekend. Uh, Not only did we give you the winner, but I think, what, three guys in the top ten? Top 12. I guess Hovland was tied T12. T12. um, You know, giving out. Names that you not necessarily have at the top of the the leaderboard. Um, If you played each of these guys each round in their matchup or you played them in your DraftKings or FanDuel or whatever uh, daily fantasy site you may use, uh, you had a very successful weekend. Uh, Hovland had a great weekend. Kevin Kisner tied for third. It's a name that I brought up last week. Adam Hadwood, not sure I mentioned him on the podcast. Definitely a guy I was all about this week. Uh, and Tom gave out Bryson DeChambeau last week, plus 550 going into the tournament. But you know what? Plus 550, Andy Winks is nice. It's a nice win. Might be the shortest price on the board, but plus 550 is a damn good price. It just seemed too obvious that this course, if he played you know, as well as he had been playing, would be a no-brainer for him, and he was crushing the ball off the tee, keeping it in play, and making lots of birdies. And also – Bit controversial in in the golf world with Bryson DeChambeau. He says some things that seemingly get under people's skin, uh, including this week saying that players need their privacy and that cameras and and <laughs> yeah. audio recording being right on top of them is not necessarily a good thing. Listen, I do not want anyone listening to me while I play golf. Facts. I don't even like listening to you when you play golf. Facts. It's it's foul. In fact, we're going to be on the golf course tomorrow, and it's probably going to be ugly. It is going to be ugly. So uh, let's talk about a preview of this week's event, which is the first of two consecutive events at Muirfield Village. 
in Columbus, Ohio, Jack Nicholas's home course. Yeah, so the John Deere Classic was canceled uh, due to the COVID pandemic. Uh, enter the Workday Charity Open. They're already going to be in Murfield. This allows them to limit travel, which obviously should help keep players healthy. Uh, this is going to be a one-off event one time, and they're going to play it at, right in Murfield. So if I had a guess, Tom's probably going to pick Justin Thomas to win because he's the favorite, and that's what Tom <laughs> does, pick favorites. Right? One time I picked the favorite. Oh, all right. So, <laughs> anyways, there's a, a pretty good field here, really, of players. Brooks yeah. Kepka makes his return this week. Um, Patrick Cantlay won last year at Muirfield Village in the Memorial Tournament. He's going to be playing. Yep. Uh, John Rahm, Hideki Matsuyama, Xander Shoffley. Um, there, there's plenty of names yeah, here. Justin Rose, Spieth, Reed, Mickelson. Should be good. Yeah, going to be a fun event this week. So I'm excited to see, you know, kind of how things shake out the first week at Muirfield and then how guys adapt after that week. So um, let's take a look and, and talk about some players that you like this week, Tom. Yeah, so when you're looking at this, you want to look at a little bit of the last few years at the Memorial. I mean, this is the same course, so you shouldn't expect much different. Um, Cantley, you already mentioned one. Um, Adam Scott was a runner-up. DeChambeau won two years ago. Duffner won. Ricky Fowler has finished twice and two times in the top five in his career there. Um, Justin Rose has also finished uh, second in this in the last five years. So what's my favorite thing to do? It's to find you a price, right? Yeah. I love to find you a value play that may have a chance at winning this event. Uh, give me Ben on plus 6,000 in this event. You're, you're a big fan of Ben on. Ben on's a good player. Uh, runner up in 2018 to Bryson DeChambeau. Yeah. Um, he's playing good, solid golf. This is a guy that I think has a great opportunity to win this particular event. I think he's accurate off the tee which is crucial at Muirfield by the way in uh, about 2016 2015 2016 had the opportunity to go and walk around Muirfield Village and uh, watch the practice round there what a gorgeous track it is and what a difference it makes whether you're in the fairway or in the rough uh, when you're when you're walking around the course you can see clearly the the huge difference between having a shot from the middle of the fairway and having something from the rough so I think that Accuracy is at a premium this week, and I think those are the guys that we should be leaning towards. Ben on is my is my favorite play at that kind of price this week at plus six thousand. Not necessarily saying he's going to win, but when you're looking for your price tag, Ben on. What's uh? What are you showing Ricky Fowler at? Ricky Fowler is plus twenty five hundred. Yeah. So I love Ricky Fowler for courses where accuracy is at a premium. He's so good um, with his irons. So he's gonna he's gonna drive it out there. It's not gonna be in, you know super impressive compared to a lot of these big bombers, but he's gonna get it out in the middle of the fairway and give himself a nice iron shot, which he usually capitalizes. I think between his irons and his putting, I think he's gonna be very competitive in this week. Two runner-up finishes in this yes. particular event at the Memorial. Um, my selection to actually win the event uh, at a little shorter price, however, is Justin Rose. Yeah, I love Justin Rose. And he's his, played this one well as well. Yeah, no well doubt. Yeah, yeah, that works. He's, he's got a win in 2010, uh, runner-up in 2015. Uh, this is a guy that seemed to have w reworked his swing during the COVID layoff, and I think that he's excited about being back on the golf course. He's had a little break here to maybe fine-tune things after not a great effort in his last time out. I think that Justin Rose is a perfect fit for this golf course. His style yeah. of game is uh, is 
ideal for this event. Yeah, him and Fowler are actually kind of similar players yeah. in that they're solid drivers, but their accuracy for the driver yeah. is more impressive than the distance, and then very good with the long irons and the putting. Yeah, no doubt. So give me Justin Rose to win this tournament, Tom. A uh, interesting feature for this year is the workday. Nine of the top ten from last year's Memorial are playing this this weekend. So you have nine guys who finished in the top ten of the Memorial back at the same course, ready to play. Um, tune up for next week even. I mean, they're going to be looking to work on some things and get ready because the Memorial is a very prestigious tournament to, to take down next week. Yeah, no question. There, you know, a lot of the big names that are playing in this weekend will be right back next week. Almost all of them, you can assure, if they're playing this week, are going to be back next week. So, along um, with some who are sitting out. Sounds for sure. like uh, you know the great Tiger Woods will make his return next week. We'll see Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, should be fun. Um, two good weeks at a beautiful golf course, and and it's going to be really enjoyable to watch. Hopefully, the weather holds up there, and um, we have nice weather and not a lot of thunderstorm delays or something like that. So. Um, Tom, what are we doing next here? Next, we have the Group 5 and Independence Preview. We're going to get into that right away. Uh, so we're going to go through each uh, conference uh, one by one. We're going to give a winner, our sleeper, our dark horse, and then we're going to talk about if any of them are, are really perceived as a national contender. Maybe not necessarily to be in the top four for a national title, but you know, make a New Year's Six Someone's going to make those New Year's Six Bowls. That's what they do. They take a team out of the Group of Five. Yep. So. Um, Tom, uh, first one. Which conference do you want to go with first? The American Athletic Conference. We went alphabet. We went alphabetical on the sheet because you know that's easy. Oh yeah, good. The American Athletic Conference is the one we went through first. All right. Who do you got, Tom? What do you see? So looking at this, I this conference should be a little wide open this year. I actually wrote down uh, as a note that I think it's going to be a three-way race. I think you have Cincinnati, UCF, and Memphis as the better teams um, at the top of this conference, and I'm actually picking Memphis. Um, I have them winning it. Uh, I like them bringing back. They got the senior quarterback, the senior wide receiver. White, yeah. Yep. Uh, they have the running back last year who led all freshmen, not not in the AAC, but in college football with 1,459 rushing yards and Kenneth Gainwell. Uh, they have three of their five alignment starting defensive, or and then seven returning starters on defense are all coming back. Uh, you put that all together with a team that finished eight and five last year. You have a really strong team pushing for that conference championship. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good program there. Uh, my concern is that they had turned it around under Mike Norvell um, and, and I think Justin Fuente prior. Um, but Norvell did an amazing job with his program, and he left for Florida State. Um, I, I went in another direction here. I, I'm going with UCF yeah. uh, to win the, win the conference this year. They're returning 16 starters, including Dylan Gabriel at quarterback, who had an amazing freshman season. This team last year was 10-3. and three. Their three losses were by a combined seven points. This is a team that when you're returning that many starters, you went 10-3, and three, and those three losses were by a combined seven points. I think has the makings of a 12-1 and one football team, maybe undefeated in the regular season. I think that they're... Um, I think that they're going to be a little better than Memphis. I think that uh, the... The question to me, though, is the runner-up that I have in this conference is Cincinnati. Um, Cincinnati has a defense that will be disgusting. Ten returning starters on that Bearcats team defense, on that, on that Bearcats defense. Uh, they need to replace Michael Warren at tailback, but I feel like that's an easy plug-and-play in general. I think Warren was a talented player, but I don't think he was, like, superstar level, somebody that you can't replace. 
Um, so they've got Desmond Ritter returning at quarterback. I feel like this is Luke Fickle has got this program rolling in the right direction. Uh, Cincinnati's defense is going to be absolutely filthy, and they're going to stun people this year. There's going to be a lot of shutouts and low-scoring games. I'm betting Cincinnati games under a ton this season. And um, so I have UCF winning the division. Cincinnati is the runner-up because I don't think that Cincinnati can quite keep up with UCF on the field, um, the scoring pace that Dylan Gabriel can set for UCF. And then my dark horse team this year in that conference, and, and this is going to be a little bit weird, but Houston – Dana Holgerson took over and had a mess last year. Injuries, transfers, it was it was complete chaos. Derek King left the program. It complete utter mess for Holgerson in his first season heading up that Cougars program. But they have a bunch of defensive transfers coming in and plenty of players that got a lot of experience in 2019. And I just trust Holgerson to get it right. And I think that you know, eight to nine wins is not unreasonable for that Cougars team this season. My uh, my sleeper for them is the SMU. Last year, ten and three. Uh, again, they're bringing back a lot of players, bringing back their quarterback, thirty nine hundred yards last year, and the defense. Shane Bouchelle, uh, Texas transfer Shane Bouchelle, um, who was lost the job to Sam Ellinger and then transferred out to SMU and was awesome. Yeah, they're bringing in transfers to defense from Auburn, UCLA, Arkansas, and Stanford. Uh, obviously, there may be a little hiccup as they get up to speed, but that is a lot of talent for this conference. Also, TCU, Memphis, Cincinnati, Navy, and Houston all are home games for them this year. So I like schedules favorable. Yeah, yeah, I like SMU to be my my sleeper uh, to come in on under the radar a little bit and make some noise at the top of this conference. All right. So now Conference USA, right, Tom? Conference USA. Absolutely. I think this is um, maybe the most difficult for me as far as the teams that I have the most experience watching and, and seeing as, like, um, I have an idea about who this guy is or who that guy is. So um, I kind of went off the radar with this with this group. Um, I chose the champion to be Southern Miss. Um, they're returning 15 starters on that team. Um Jack Abraham returns as the starting quarterback and, and has 14 other starters with him. I expect that there's going to be a big step forward with this program. They seem to play really sound, smart football, and I really like them coming back this year, uh, improving from where they were to uh, win maybe 10, 11 games. For Conference USA, I went with UAB. Uh, I really feel they have the offense to get this done. Um, Tyler Johnson the is coming back. Spencer Brown is already UAB's all-time leading rusher. Uh, you have Austin Watkins had over 1,000 yards receiving last year. They have six O-linemen who have started uh, for this team already coming back. They have two NFL prospects on their defense in Jordan Smith and Christopher Mull. Uh, Smith had 17.5 tackles for loss last year from the edge position. They're also bringing back their all-conference cornerback. Just a lot of returning players to a team that's already – last year uh, in the mix. So I, I have UAB, and then my sleeper, I have Florida Atlantic. I kind of feel like they're being slept on a little bit. They're they're bringing in a, a new quarter – or they're bringing back Chris Robinson at quarterback, um, the all-conference quarterback from last season. But they're also bringing in four wide receivers to replace some of the, the uh, wide receivers that they lost last year from Duke, Cincinnati, Florida State, Clemson. They're all bringing in transfers. Uh, top four running backs are all back. Uh, the big question mark is on defense. Are they able? They're they're changing systems. Will they be able to make that work? But I think that offense is going to keep them in some games. 
you know, eight and four, uh, you know, nine and three is what I'm looking to see them at. Will they be able to to capitalize on the offense and and get that defense up to snuff any faster? Is the coaching staff going to be able to keep up with what Lane Kiffin had rolling there? That's the big question mark. Yeah. I think that that's why they may be underrated is because of the name value of Lane Kiffin and what he's done with the program. But I think a lot of what Lane Kiffin offered in value was the recruiting, and those players are still there. So we'll see if that program can continue to roll with him gone. And um, I think they're a huge question mark. But definitely the biggest variable, I think, in the conference is that team's record. Yeah, they, they definitely have the talent on offense to be competitive. It, it all is going to come down to, is that defense good enough? Yeah, no question. So, who do you have for a sleeper there, Kev? I have uh, so the runner-up in the conference. I had Western Kentucky. Um, yeah, the Hilltoppers. Yeah, they're returning 15 starters, but they have to replace Ty Story and Lucky Jackson on offense. Those two guys were a huge part of what they did last year, and I think that that's why I chose Southern Miss to perhaps beat them in the conference. Um, I think they'll have a chance to win the conference if they get good quarterback play and and they can find another explosive option. Um, but I, I decided to lean towards Southern Miss. But my dark horse in the conference is Charlotte. Charlotte returns several starters, including quarterback Chris Reynolds. Um, the program is rising, and if they continue to develop, they could compete for this conference. Um, they, they played in U, against UB in the, in the bowl game this past year, and they got beat uh, pretty handily. But this is a program that really has taken a lot of steps forward and seems like they're moving in the right direction here. Uh, returning enough starters that could make this team very competitive and and really shock a lot of people this season in the conference. All right. So next we're going to roll in the MAC. Uh, Kevin and I got a little piece in this game. We won't kid anybody. Um, we are big fans of UB. They're right up the street here, um, and I, they're they're my pick to win the 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 conference. They are last year. 388.5 yards per game, 99% of that production on offense is coming back. Uh, they're bringing back Jared Patterson, who if you haven't heard yet, Barry Sanders says he's the best foot, the best running back in college football. Um, he's coming back. You're, you have another running back in Kevin Marsh, who also ran for 1,000 yards last year. Kyle Vantry stepped in admirably at quarterback last season. Yeah, He only played in five games, but uh, 1,100 yards, eight touchdowns, two, only two interceptions, and those games looked very good. Uh, a lot less risk compared to some of their former QBs. Seven of 11 starters are back on defense, and they led the MAC in total defense last year. And and those of you that don't know about Lance Leipold, you should probably read up on him. Absolutely. Lance Leipold is a guy that was the head coach at Wisconsin Whitewater when they were absolutely dominant at the Division Three level, and he has taken this program uh, following the the debacle after. Um, you know, losing Turner. Turner Gill had a couple of good seasons, and then they went through some transition. Things didn't go that well. Um, Lance Leipold came in here and has done an amazing job with the UB football program. They're also my selection to win the MAC this year. They seem to be a, a popular selection across the board yeah. amongst the media members because this team runs the ball better than any non-option team in all of college football. Yeah. They're, they're also challenging themselves. I mean, when you look at the start of their schedule, September 5th, they're at Kansas State, September 19th at Ohio State. So they're going to be sharp when it comes to conference play after that. A couple big cha challenges on the road against Power 5 schools, uh, really taking the bull by the horns. They're kind of going after it. Who do you have as a sleeper in this conference? Then? I have Ball State. Oh, that's my dark horse as well. Yeah. Oh. Look at us. We like, yeah. the, we like the Mac here in uh, Western we do, New York. Yeah. <laughs> so Ball State, I love them. They're 
led the conference in points per game and yards per game last year. Six starters on offense coming back, seven starters on defense. Um, Drew Plitt, 4,300 career passing yards, 18 starts. He's coming back for them this year. Uh, a lot of to like about Ball State. Ball State's going to be in shootouts all year, and I think that uh, other MAC teams may not be equipped for it. I think that, you know, in fact, like a team like UB, this could be one of their harder matchups because Ball State can can strike quickly. Yeah. And if you struggle and get behind with them, um, UB's style of, of running the ball down your throat is not nearly as effective. So um, Ball State's going to have an opportunity to win a lot of games in this conference this year. I actually chose Ohio as my runner-up in this division this year. Um, they returned 16 starters to Frank Solich's team, you know, and um, they had a bad season last year, and I expect them to bounce back and be a tough football program again. Um, they were expected to be the winners of the MAC last year, and they had a really disappointing year. I don't expect that to continue for two years in a row. I think that Ohio's going to have a really nice season this year. Yeah. Ball State, just to get back to them, um, three O line of. Three of their O-line returning starters have a combined 60 starts in college football. That's a crazy amount of starts to be bringing back between three players. Uh, their cornerbacks last year had four and five interceptions, you know, individually. That is a lot. You know, that defense is, is active. They do take a lot of risk, which leads to the turnovers and also the big plays. But they, they should be in a lot of games. I, I do think they're fun to watch and it should be – I like them as a sleeper to make some noise. I'm just not sure they're they talented enough to beat the – well-rounded UB team yeah and uh, you know I, I'm trying to take a look now and see if I can find um, the college football season win totals for this year because you know absolutely a big fan of, of, of looking at balls yeah ball states total is six wins oh yeah six are you kidding me I mean the over is juiced to minus 125 but I will hammer that Ball State's going to win more than six football games. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at them to win eight or nine. Yeah. You know, easily. Their their schedule uh, is not something that's that's going to really throw you off them. And you know. UB's at seven and a half, by the way. Yeah, UB's get a little harder because of those out-of-conference games are very difficult that they've chosen yeah. this year. Uh, but when you look at, you know, someone like Ball State, let's see what their schedule looks like. Gosh, six games. That's crazy to me. It, it feels like... You know, six and five in the regular season would be a really disappointing season for them. So I, I would anticipate that seven and four, eight and three, nine and two, ten and one. That that yeah. You're, you're you're playing Maine at home. You do have to go play at Michigan and at Indiana, but then you have the the start of conference play. You have Wyoming, um, out of conference again. Wyoming at home, then West Michigan, Ball State. Um, then you're playing at Buffalo. By the way, Wyoming is a good football team. But they're sound and solid. But Ball State's going to put up a lot of points, and they they could yeah. win that football game. So you know, speaking of that, let's get to the Mountain West. Mountain West, all right. Mountain West is next on the list. Great transition, Tom. Yeah, I'm learning. That was professional. <laughs> <laughs> so I have Boise State as the champion in the Mountain West. Unfortunately, I spent a bunch of time trying to find a, a team that I thought could win the division outside of Boise State, and I really couldn't find it anywhere. No. I looked around. You know, Wyoming has – they have their fair share of losses in the program this year, uh, but they, they play just such a solid, steady style of football. They're going to be, you know, hanging around in a lot of football games now. But I, I just really don't see anyone that can compete with them. 
Um, and I ended up landing on Hawaii as my runner-up this year. Uh, despite the loss of, of their head coach and now bringing Todd Graham in to take things over, they return a fair number of starters. I think the offensive success will continue, and I think Todd Graham will create a little more success on defense than they, what they've seen in years past. Um, Nick Rolovich, I think, is a nice coach, but I think that he's going to struggle uh, in the Pac-12. So uh, for me, I, I'm all about uh, Hawaii maybe having a really good season under Todd Graham. Um, I don't think that Cole McDonald's loss is as big as people might think, and that's why the expectations are a bit down for them. So that's why I, I'm rolling with Hawaii to finish second in the Mountain West. Yeah, I also have Boise State, and Kevin and I were talking about this earlier. When I was looking at the Mountain West, I, my first thought was, I don't want to pick Boise because that's what everyone's going to do. You know, you know, it, it's not good information if it's just the same information, right? So I was looking at teams. I probably looked at San Diego State's team probably three, four times, trying to find a way to will them to be yeah. able to beat Boise State, and I just couldn't think of a, you know, couldn't fi- couldn't put it out there as fact. So I have Boise State winning as well. They're just so good every year in year out. Yes, they lost guys to the to the NFL. Yes, they lost graduating seniors, but they always reload. And they reload at a level that's not what you see in the Mountain West. So I have Boise State. My sleeper is actually Wyoming, who you were just talking about. Um, I think this team is good enough to scare some people. Uh, they actually have the all 10 offensive linemen from their bowl game last year are coming back. Um, the two-deep depth chart is all back, so they have everybody up front. Uh, they should have a lot. Uh, Sean Chambers should be back for the season uh, in seven and a half games. He threw for 900 yards, seven touchdowns, three picks, but he also ran for 567 yards, a true dual-threat quarterback. It should be interesting to see what they can do. And, and they're a sleeper because it, they're not they're not getting a lot of publicity as being a contender in this conference, but I think they can make some noise, even upset one of these uh, teams, Boise State, San Diego State, as they're looking to try to win this conference. It, I looked a lot into this conference, and I want to say that, you know, first of all, there are a lot of teams that people sleep on. They have no idea if they're any good or not when you're watching those games. But I love watching late-night football on Saturday nights, and I watch a lot of these games. San Jose State had a really nice year last year. Um, they, they're crediting a lot of it to the quarterback that they had, but I don't think that that's what it is. I think that it starts at the top, and I think that they're on their way to rebuilding that program. A team that was expected to win maybe one or two games last year ended up winning three or four anyway. Um, Their win total is five and a half this year. Um, I I tend to like San Jose State a little bit, but here's my sleeper that I I haven't even gotten to yet. It's Colorado State. Steve Adazio has uh, departed BC, you know, not under great terms, uh, going to Colorado State, who returns 13 starters, uh, I think that he will instill some toughness in a program that has never really seen the kind of style of coaching that Steve Adazio can bring. I think that this team will start running the ball with a vengeance. I think that this team that won four games last year could win eight games in 2020. Uh, they're over under on their win total six and a half. So I kind of like Colorado State to go over their win total on the season. So that's my, my dark horse sleeper uh, from the Mountain West this year. Sunbelt time. Sunbelt Conference. Um, pop quiz for the gallery here tonight. <laughs> Josh, name one team from the Sunbelt Conference. Uh, Florida Atlantic? No. No. Oh. They're in the AAC. Oops. What else you got? Um, 
Correct. Yeah, you got one. So Georgia Southern he comes up with from out of the clouds. That a boy. <laughs> nice job, Josh. Nice pull. <laughs> I like that. That was that was pretty good. <laughs> uh, some of the teams that he did not mention, uh, including my champion for this year that I have listed, is uh, Appalachian State. Uh, I'll, I'll continue with Appalachian State, and the, here's the reason why. You returned nine offensive starters to that offense that was very successful last year. Um, I expect them to continue to win a ton of football games. Um, I really I really like this program. There are two programs that really kind of stand out right now. Uh, it's Appalachian State and Louisiana. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm all over Appalachian State to win this conference. And I'm on the other, Louisiana. Uh, they are very good. Top 10 nationally last year in total offense, scoring offense, and yards per play. Seven of 11 offensive starters are back. Just a lot to like. All five offensive linemen are back from last season. There's a lot to like coming back to build off of. Uh, the defense was the number one in Sun Belt last year, averaging 19.7 points per game allowed and seven returning starters. And I think this gets sorted out early. October 7th, Louisiana has to go to App State to play. That will be a huge game in kind of figuring this all out. But I like Louisiana to get it done. I, I agree with Kevin, though. I think it's Louisiana and App State. I actually wrote down Louisiana over App State in the championship game. I, I think it's those two teams, in the end, going to kind of figure out who's the better team on that day. Yeah, so I have a couple of interesting ones here for everybody. Um, I really like Troy this year. Um, Troy is returning the majority of their offensive production this year. Um, they have a new, a, a new incoming quarterback named Parker McNeil. He's a junior college transfer quarterback. Um, he's 6'5", 237, and he's got a very strong arm. Uh, this is a pocket passer um, that's going to sit back there and, and throw bullets. Troy is a well-coached team on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, they're going to be really, really interesting to watch. This is a team that could surprise everyone. I actually have them as my runner-up um, by stealing that uh you know that spot from Louisiana. I know Louisiana's good. I really like them, but I think Troy might be able to get them here, especially if it all depends on how good Parker McNeil is and how well his stats from junior college translate to uh, the next level. Um, and then I just want to talk about one more team here, my dark horse from this conference. Their win total set at 5.5 for the season. Bet the over on Georgia State. That's your dark horse? That is my dark horse. Georgia State, their over-under is five and a half wins. They're plus 130 for over five and a half. Georgia State returns 17 starters, four out of five offensive linemen. They've got a guy that's coaching that program that is an offensive line guru. This team is going to run the ball. They're going to do everything really well. They're going to be fundamentally sound. They will surprise by winning as many as seven or eight games. Here's what I wrote down. I really think that Georgia State is a team to watch this year. And don't be surprised. I haven't looked at their schedule yet. Tom, do you have their schedule by any chance that you can pop up really quick? I don't know who the major teams are they play this year, but don't be surprised if they give them a little trouble. One second. I can bring that up. Yeah, they beat Tennessee last year. Yeah. Um, at Alabama. Well, that's not good. Murray State at Alabama, Louisiana, Charlotte, East Carolina. They get right into it. 
All right. So, I mean, they play Charlotte that's out of conference. I think they'll win that football game or, or be very competitive in it. So, um, it, again, over five and a half, Georgia State. If you take nothing else from, from, from this conversation, take Georgia State over five and a half this season. Um, what else do we have, Tom? So, my sleeper for the Sun Belt is Arkansas State. I'm a big fan of what they have going on I on like offense. Too. They have like a lot them. of talent at running back, a lot of talent at wide receiver. This is a team that doesn't have one or two studs. They have four or five guys at each position who are going to touch the ball, be active. Uh, their question mark for me is kind of their schedule. They're hampered a little bit at trying to make a big run. They have to go to Michigan. They're hosting Tulsa. Um, they're playing at Memphis the first week of the season. So some of those games are, are going to be tougher for them right out the gate. Uh, but – this will be their 10th consecutive bowl game if they can be bowl eligible this year. Not a lot of people think, you know, steady as she goes, powerhouse college football teams, Arkansas State Red Wolves does not come to mind. But they, if they make a bowl game this year, it would be their 10th in a row. Um, they're being slept on because of Louisiana and App State's kind of dominance o- over this conference. But I think Arkansas State is going to be a very good team. They'll be in another bowl game. They're going to be right there, you know, 7-5, and 8-4 and four at the end of the season. Yeah. All right, so what else do we have in front of us? Independence. So, so we'll talk about the independent not a, teams. Not yeah. so much a conference. We're going to kind of talk about the best of the group, um, who we think, and maybe uh, a sleeper from this group as well that can make a little bit of noise. Um, I'll just do it. Let me just rip it off, right? Go ahead. Go ahead. This is all you right here. This is your world. Notre Dame. Yeah. Best of the group by far. Uh, this is a team that has been very good for the last few years. Ian Book coming back has made a big, easy transition for them in this offseason with no spring ball, uh, being able to do that. The biggest thing for them is going to be young secondary and young group of receivers. Um, The receivers aren't too scary because I think young wide receivers make impact in college football every year, but young secondary can be a real problem when you're going up against some teams. Their schedule, also not a huge um, help to them. Uh, They always do play a tough schedule, and this year is no different. They are going to be playing, you know, at Wisconsin. They're playing Wisconsin at a neutral field. They're going to be playing some. They have to play Clemson at home. Uh, They're going at USC this year. So a lot of real tough games for them this season on the docket, but that's, you know, not abnormal for them. No, and I think that Notre Dame is lined up to have one of those seasons where they're competing to to hang in there and, and, you know, Get get beat Ian, in the national be, championship yeah, playoffs yeah, this, again. This is what we're this is what we're dialing up here. Yeah. Ian Book has a ton of experience. Every every other position just continues to reload. Um, they're a very talented program. Uh, are they ever going to be able to reach the the talent of the SEC or you know those top end teams like Ohio State and Oklahoma and in, in the Big Twelve has been crazy good for a number of years now. So uh, you know, can they get there? I think they can. Uh, are they there now? I don't know. I think that. I, I like Notre Dame. To, I, let's take a look. What's their win total on the season here? Um, Probably eight. I'm going to guess eight and a half. Yeah, so Notre Dame's win totals on the season, nine. They're, yeah. they're set right at nine. So they would need to go, what, ten and one in the regular season in order to win. Um, I mean, who are, the, who, are the, who are the two losses on two. their schedule? Wisconsin they, and they Clemson. They 12 regular season games? Yeah. Yeah, USC's tough. Clemson, you know, Clemson's tough. Yeah, obviously, Wisconsin at Wisconsin's tough. But I feel like Wisconsin is. We'll get to them when we talk Big Ten. But 
they might be falling back a little bit this year compared to what they were the last two years. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the other stuff, they play Arkansas at home, but I'm not right really that concerned with that one. It's not a number I love because I think nine is probably where they are most likely yeah, to nine land. And nine, is, is nine and ten is Nine and three, ten and two is like right where yeah, they're if right they, if they, yeah, if they lose, you know, you, you have the three really, really tough games in USC, Clemson, and Wisconsin. If you go one and two in those games, you're you're more than likely going to be nine and three because you're going to drop another one somewhere else. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I love Notre Dame this year. I think they're going to be a really good team, but they do have some tough matchups on that schedule. So um, I want to talk a little about BYU. Knock yourself another, out. Another independent. Um, so – BYU starts the season at Utah, home for Michigan State, at Arizona State, at Minnesota. Do you want any part of that schedule to start your season, Tom? No. No. I think that, um, you know, BYU's win total is seven, but the rest of their schedule softens up a bit. Uh, Utah State, Missouri, Houston versus Northern Illinois, uh, at Boise, San Diego State, Northern Alabama. North Alabama and at Stanford, but those first four games they could they could literally take a beat down. Yeah, this may be a team that you wait in the weeds, and then once they get those beat downs, you start betting them to cover the next few games. Yeah, and get those rebounds. We talk a lot of, about that a lot in the NFL. Situational where, spots where man. teams who have underperformed in the last few weeks maybe have a lot of turnovers in a couple of back-to-back games that just look bad. Those are really good teams to bet the opposite the next couple of weeks because they're going to come back to the median. Teams come back to the median no matter yeah. what. They they realize who they are at some point, you know, not yeah. not not literally, but you know that that's just kind of the way that it works out. Teams kind of just regression to the median. That's what they always say, no yeah. matter what it is, whether it's one way or the other. It's gonna the numbers are going to regress to the median. So. Um, you know, not not the biggest fan of what Utah's got or BYU's got in front of them. Uh, that first week is always fun. They're playing at Utah week one, and who the Holy love War. watching the Holy War. Yeah, Holy War is always a blast. So, um, not a lot of, you know, you have Army, uh, who's going to be an independent New Mexico State, Liberty, Connecticut. Not a lot of teams that are really worth getting too into. They're they're not going to be very good. They're not going to be very competitive. Um, yeah, um, as I look at it, so Athlon Sports uh, Magazine has Army ranked, uh, projected to be number 93 in the nation, UConn 123, Liberty 110, New Mexico State 128, um, UMass 130. So the independents are not, not looking very strong outside of Notre Dame. It's tough to recruit as an independent. I think some of these schools yeah. need to link up. They do. I think they do, yeah, no question. And, you know, We'll talk more about these teams as they get matchups throughout the course of the sure. season. We're, because one thing that you can count on from us is finding matchups, regardless of how highly ranked or how high profile the game is, we're going to find opportunities to win bets. Yeah. So a lot at of times, some point, we're going to be talking about New Mexico State playing uh, yeah. at UTEP on September 26th and yeah. saying, hey, I really like New Mexico State's out here, you know. Don't don't mark that down. I don't know yet, but yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, a lot of those are, are better bets because they're going to be less bet games. And they will have less impact from random people who don't know what they're doing. No question. So uh, that's your that is your uh, group of five preview, guys. And uh, we're going to take a quick break here because I think we both have to take a piss at this point in the night. So facts. <laughs> we'll be back with you right after this. We are back, and it's time for name this player, Tom. 
Oh, yeah. Tonight, we focus on Associated Press Defensive Rookies of the Year since the year 2000. The year 2000. Are you ready for rookie number one? Yeah, I mean, sure. All right. This player. Bosa. 44 quarterback sacks in his college career. 65 and a half tackles for loss in his college career. And 163 tackles. This player in his NFL career had 886 tackles, 139 sacks, 39 forced fumbles, and three touchdowns. Three. Tom, name this player. Active player. This player was active in 2019. Oh, boy. Can't say for 2020 yet, but... 139 sacks is plenty of sacks. It's also a lot of forced fumbles and three touchdowns. Were they a Big Ten linebacker? Or were they in the Big Ten? No. No. Tom's get out the assist from Big Josh here in the background tonight. <laughs> yeah. Just fair. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Um, is it Keekley? It is not. Yeah. Keekley does not have 130 plus sacks in the NFL. I'm sacks. Yeah, I mean, even if you have 139 sacks, if you've played 10 years, that's 13 a year. That's nuts. So it's probably longer than that. Ah. Peppers. No. Good Damn. guess, though. I like that guess. Well, he, mm. Three more to go, Tom. Uh, were they an SEC player? No. Two questions to go. Did they play for the Bills at all? No. Is it Jason Taylor? 
No. Don't know. You got one more question to go, Tom. So let me let me give you one more hint here. This player also won NFL Defensive Player of the Year in 2011. 2011? Oh, is this J.J. Swat? No. No idea. Josh, shout us the answer. Terrell Suggs. It is Terrell Suggs. Terrell Suggs. Terrell Suggs in his career had 130-plus sacks, NFL Defensive Player of the Year. Thought, thought maybe you might land that one, Tom. Thought maybe you'd bring that one home. In Tom's defense, we're deep in the alcohol tonight, <laughs> so the, the thinking thinking brain particles may not be working quite right. All right, what's number two? Here we go. Mm -hmm. Two-time. First-team all-conference player. Two-time All-American in college. Defensive player of the year in his conference. Buckus Award winner. Jack Lambert Award winner. This player, in his career, had 950 total tackles. 20 and a half sacks, eight interceptions, two touchdowns. Who's this player, Tom? Do they play in the ACC? They did not. Big Ten. They did not. Come on. Are they active? No. Ooh, did they play for the Texans? No. Had a few linebackers back in my day. This was a first-round pick in five teams. Five-time first-team All-Pro member. Five-time All-Pro? Yeah.
It's not a lot of sacks for being a five-time All-Pro. He's narrowing down the position, folks. It's definitely a linebacker here. We got the Buckus Award. He's narrowing down the style of linebacker, folks. <laughs> Couple questions, like two questions left, I think. One, I got one, one left. One left. All right. you drink the harder it gets eight interceptions isn't bad for a linebacker though no uh, did they ever win a Super Bowl they did not win a Super Bowl Ooh, so maybe they played in one. Linebacker. I'm going to say Thomas Davis, even though I don't think it's right. No. No idea. Peanut gallery. We got any guesses here? This time I wasn't sure. I saw it on the computer. Though. Oh, you, you saw who it is. Yes. It's Patrick Willis. Patrick Willis. All right. You know, challenging. Yeah, these defensive rookies are harder than I thought they were going to be. Yeah, and I'm trying to give people that are, you know, it's not like these guys are no-name players. Sure. I thought maybe the, the duration of the career, but all those all-pro experiences might get you where you needed to go. But, uh, you know, understandably difficult. So, our final one of the night. This player in college had 33 sacks in 47 games. Yowzer. In the NFL, this player has 106 career sacks in 135 games. 489 tackles. Two interceptions. Two career touchdowns. Hmm. 
this player has franchise records for sacks in a season. And career sacks for his franchise. Name this player, Tom. All right. Are they active? Yes. Is it Joey Bosa? No. <laughs> First thing you said when uh, you said we're going to do a defense rookie year, I remember when Nick Bosa won. They said his brother had won. That was like the first thing that came to mind. I was like, oh, the Bosa brothers. <laughs> 135 games. Uh, is it J.J. Watt? No. That would have been too easy. All right. So they are active. Not only are they active, but this player was in the 2020 Pro Bowl. Are they with the same team they were drafted by? Yes. Mm. Is Aaron Donald? No. Mm. I'm trying to think. 135 games. That's eight plus seasons. So they would have been 2011, 2012, maybe 2010 rookie of the year. He's on the right path, folks. <laughs> Can you get there is always the question. Already the leader in sacks for a season and a career for his franchise. Correct. Is this Von Miller? It is. Yeah. Tom nails it. Just under the wire. Didn't, didn't get blanked. Just under the wire, he comes in with Von Miller. Oh, that's the worry. He's getting blanked. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. He nailed it. <laughs> I'm a little mad I didn't get Patrick Willis. Yeah, I thought you would. I thought, I thought Patrick Willis, but five-time All-Pro, should know that. You should know those players at least, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh. It's, uh, it's, you know, it, no matter what you say, it – this is harder than people want to can even understand until you're in the seat. Yeah, it's, it, it's very, very difficult to really try and process this information in your head. So um, that was solid, though. Von Miller right at the end. Uh, we're moving on now, right, Tom? Yes. Uh, UFC 251 this weekend. Yes. The debut of Fight Island. A lot to look forward to at the uh, especially the main card for UFC 251 is full of. We have three title fights. We have a oh, title rematch. We have a light fill-in. Uh, pretty much every storyline you can imagine we're going to have for you uh, on Saturday night. The debut of Fight Island. Fight Island, baby. 
does that octagon look sick or what? Yeah, so they have two separate arenas set up. I don't know if they're using when they're going to use each, but they have one right on the beach, which is insane, and they have one in like a little dome they created as well. It, it's going to be quite entertaining to see. Yeah. I've seen, I've been following some of the fighters on Instagram and stuff and their process of having to get tested, be in a hotel for 48 hours, then you're allowed to get on a plane and go there. Uh, for those of you not familiar, they have a zone blocked off on this island where only tested UFC officials are allowed to get in this section of the island. You have to be tested and have it come back as negative to even get into um, that part of the island. So, um, you know, it's they're doing everything they can to keep these fighters you know, free of any kind of hiccups with the COVID and just isolating them as much as they possibly can. Yeah, and, you know, that, that's what more can you ask for as, you know, a fight fan, you're like, hey, let's keep these guys safe. Let's yeah, have this stuff happen. You know, like you guys are there in that whatever tropical resort, if you want to call it. The, I don't know if, if you can call it Gabi tropical, but um, it's it's going to be fun to, to watch, man. I, I cannot wait. So um, let's talk about the card a little, Tom. Yeah. Where do you want to start? You want to start with some prelims? Yeah. Anything let's you see let's there? talk about some prelims. Um, what do you think of uh, this Romanov Tabura fight? Did you look at that at all? Yeah, what's the line at for that? That's, uh, that's a very good question. Um, let's see. Minus 110, both sides. Yeah, th- this is... So oh, off. wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, so Maxim Grishin is, is now stepped in to fight Marching Tabora. So Romanov's off. Romanov's off, so it's Max That's disappointing. Yeah. Romanov is Romanov's undefeated. undefeated. Yeah. yeah. And it would be a huge, it would be his UFC debut, it would have been. Yeah, that's depressing. Yeah, it's a little bummer right there. So now, if you're giving me minus 110 with Marching Tabora against, you know, let, let's take a look at, I don't know Max Grishin that, that well, so let's take a look at his record here and see. I spell that last name? It's uh, Maxim Grishin, G-R-I-S-H-I-N. Um, he is 30-7 and seven in his career. 15 TKO, 6 submissions, 9 decision wins. He's been knocked out 3 times, submitted 3 times. Um, coming off, he has 2 draws in his last 4 fights. Um, he has a decision win over Jordan Johnson, a KO over Mikhail Machnath. McNaughtkin looks like might be his first UFC fight because I'm not familiar with any of these other fights. So, um, give me the experience, Marcin Tabura now. Yeah, <laughs> over a guy that's stepping in on short notice, seemingly, um, in Maxim Grishin. So, um, that 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 took a turn on me, Tom, because I was originally <laughs> looking at the fight card, seeing Romanoff. The <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean Tabura is a really good fighter. Some of his losses, Derek Lewis. Uh, Fabricio Verdem, I mean, he beat Arlovsky. He's a guy who's fought uh, a lot of guys at heavyweight. And, uh, you know, this this match is not going to be much different. And you said that he, the other guy has 30, over 30 fights, you said? 30 wins and 7 Christian, losses. Here he is. And, uh, yeah, so 39, this will be his 40th professional fight. He's definitely been around. Yeah, just not sure if it's... Uh the kind of experience that Tabora has. Yeah, I'm seeing, not seeing a lot of M1 on his. Uh... So, you know, I, I'm going to take Tabora in that fight. 
Uh, the next fight that I'm looking at on the undercard is this uh, Jiri Prochaska. Have you, have you seen this guy, Tom? Yeah, versus Ozdemir. Against Vulcan Ozdemir. He's plus 141 in this fight. This Jiri Prochaska has knocked out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight consecutive opponents, um, seven of them in the first round. Uh, his most recent knockout was over C.B. Dalloway um, on December 31st of last year. Uh, it's not like he's fighting no one. 26-3, and three, 23 knockouts, two submissions, and one decision. I am taking a chance at plus 141 <laughs> on this Jiri Prochaska. Yeah, big hands. This guy obviously throws bombs, right? Yeah. Vulcan Ozdemir is a nice fighter, but... Um, yeah, Ozdemir knocks a lot of people out, too, so that should be, if nothing else, a very entertaining fight. Uh, his last... You know, he's had a rough go of it recently. Um, two and three in his last five, but those losses were against Dominic Reyes, Anthony Smith, and Daniel Cormier. Uh, you know, nothing really to be ashamed of there. Some really good fighters. But it seems that he does cap out at some when he fights some of the, the tougher competition in the UFC. Yeah, so give me the, the guy that's knocked out 23 of his 26 opponents, uh, finished 25 of 26, He's gone to decision one time. What's the? I wonder what the over/under prices are like in that fight. Um, and a lot of these were first yeah. round knockouts. Guys. You can get under one and a half rounds for plus one twenty two for two knockout artists. It's an easy bet. I, I, I like both. I like I like under one and a half, and I like plus one forty one on Prochaska. So that's that's stuff that. <laughs> Those are the opportunities we're looking for here and, and things that hopefully we can expose for you guys listening out there. Um, Get to this main card. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I'm going to jump right to the last three fights. Those are the three fights that I think mean the most, right? Unless you see something you want to really talk about there. No, I mean, I, I'm really excited about the Jessica Andrade Rose uh, Namanunas fight. They're both great fighters. They've both been around this division for a while now. And I think it is, I mean, it's a title eliminator. You got the number one and the number, um, I think she's still number two. Yeah, the number two fighter in the women's strawweight division going at it. So, you know, they fought everybody at, at their weight classes before. Um, I think that fight's going to be a lot of fun to watch. It's, it's so, we were just talking about this. It's tough to get a line on some of these because a lot of these top female fighters, they're so close. And without the big knockout power for a lot of them, it becomes hard. Now, Andrade did knock out Rose Namanunas back in 20, May of 2019. She knocked her out with a slam um, that was for the title. Uh, so she knocked her out and uh, then lost her title to Zhang and obviously trying to get it back. So a little, uh, a little revenge on Rose's mind. And Jessica Andrade is trying to get back really to it. really come around big time in, in recent times. You know, Rose had a, a rough st stretch in her career, but has really gotten hot in the last couple of years, right, Tom? Yeah. Uh, her last fight was the loss to Jessica Andrade, but before that she beat Joanna Jacek twice in a row, um, beat Michelle Waterson. So she was on a bit of a tear. She also has wins over Tisha Torres, Paige Van Zandt, Angela Hill, who we've all seen do very well in uh, the this division in the UFC. Uh, so 
you know, was it a fluke that slam kind of knockout? Is is that something that's going to repeat? I mean, that's not something you would normally see as an end result of a fight. So maybe something you want to discard and and just look at the fight before that and yeah, how it I mean, was going. I, I really like where Thug Rose was at prior to that, and maybe yeah. it was just kind of a you know kind of thing happens. So. Yeah, but both of them have a lot going for them uh, trying to win this fight, so it should definitely be you know both of them going at it trying to get another chance at the title. And we've got Peter Yan against uh, Jose Aldo, right? Yes, that's the and that's for the interim bantamweight title. So Aldo has lost two fights in a row. Yeah, those fights were to Alex Volkanovski and Marlon Mohias. Um, he has wins over Hanato Carnero, Jeremy Stevens, uh, the two fights before that. But prior to that, he had lost two in a row to Max Holloway. Beat Frankie Edgar in 2016. Lost Conor McGregor in that epic knockout of McGregor in 2015. I can't believe that was five years ago, Tom. Can <laughs> you? That seems crazy to me. Um, but prior to that, he fought everyone. So is Jose Aldo over the hill? Is he done? Um, that's the question here because yeah. Peter Jan's got a lot of skill. Yeah, Jan's coming in a nine-fight win streak as well. Um Decision went against Dodson. Decision went against Jimmy Rivera. Actually KO'd Uriah Faber in the beginning of the third round. Uh, so those are his last uh, three fights. Definitely coming in on a high streak, going to be going after it. When you look at his his record, I mean, his only loss was a deci- split decision loss to Magomed, Magomedov, and he actually avenged that with a unanimous decision win, um, you know, a year later. So I feel like... I've been on the wrong side of some of these in years past with guys who you know their name, you know how great they are um, or how great they were. Right. And then you get caught up. I I remember being on the wrong side of BJ Penn fights when he was making comebacks and stuff, you know, just thinking of how great he looked in years prior. And I think that, these guys, they fall off at some point, right, Tom? I sure. mean, is, is, is Junior just finished at this point at 33 years old? He's got 34 professional fights under his belt. Um, I mean, he's 3-5 and five in his last eight fights. Yeah, and, and now he's fighting for the interim belt, and I think that Jan has just got way more ahead of him than yeah. Jose does. I wonder does. how everyone in the division feels about him getting a shot at this since, since he hasn't won. You know, his last two fights were both losses. I mean, what's the, what do the what do the rankings look like in the one in the one forty five division? Um, let's see if I can pull them up here. Volkanovski is is the, the clear champion champ. right now, and then you've got Holloway, and then you know behind that, uh, Chan Sung Jung, um, Magomed Sharapov. Are these guys fighting at a different class? Yep, they're fighting that, for bantamweight. Oh, they're fighting at, at yeah. 35? or Yeah. Yeah, they're fighting at 135. I'm sorry, that's... Aldo has fought at 145 in the past as well, which is Correct. what led to my uh, confusion there. My apologies. Yeah, so Aldo's ranked six uh, behind Cody Garbrandt. Um, Algerman Sterling, who just looked really, really good. Uh, last time we saw him fight. Marlon Mohias is number yep. one right now. It's another guy he's lost to. Um, yeah. Corey Sandhagen's right ahead of him. 
Sean O'Malley climbing that division as well. As he should. He should probably be way higher than 14 right now. Yeah. But, so, uh, I mean, that, that fight is very interesting. Um, Jan is a big favorite. I don't know what you have him at, but uh, BetUS has him at Jan at minus 220. Yeah, he's a monster favorite. All these championship fights have big favorites, it seems. Yeah, and then, you know, you, you look at uh, minus 250 for Jan, plus 201 on Aldo. I mean, to me, the play in this fight is over three and a half at minus 112. So I get over three and a half. This fight's probably going to drag out the distance, if you ask me, or get darn close to it. So I like the over three and a half at minus 112. That, you can put me on record for that one, Tom. Write her down. Write her <laughs> down. Wage, wager tracker here. Um, um, the next Volkanovski the, Holloway, right? Yeah, the next one's Volkanovski and Holloway, who just recently fought. Uh, Volkanovski uh, winning the fight, winning the decision. And I, just, I saved a stat earlier that I wanted to share because it's cr- kind of crazy. What do you think the odds were in the fight? Of the Holloway Volkanovski, the first one, yeah, probably the exact opposite of what they are or for this more. one, yeah, or more. So Volkanovski destroyed Max Holloway with the the dreaded calf kick. He landed a record for a male fight, seventy five leg kicks in the five rounds. Yeah, that is insane amount of kicks. Yeah, just absolutely nuts. Here's my concern about Max Holloway. As I look back on his hot streak there. Yeah. He has wins over Anthony Pettis, who seems to be on the downside. Jose Aldo twice on the downside. Brian Ortega, who I don't think is at this caliber of fighter. Sure. And Frankie Edgar, who is clearly on the downside. Um, Where are his win over the top contending, you know, yeah. I just feel like he lost to Poirier. Yeah, he lost to Poirier. A unanimous decision, and then got decision by Volkanovski. I just don't know if he has what it takes to get a win over Volkanovski at this point in his career. Yeah, and Volkanovski has a great record coming into this. Uh, he's 21-1, and one, just on an 18-fight win streak. You don't see f- win streaks like that in MMA very often. You want to know when the last time he lost? May of 2013. Goodness. And, you know, so for me, I have a hard time getting on Holloway in this fight. Yeah. It's it's just tough to do. I mean, as much as I'd like to. Yeah, I might want to text some draft text some DraftKings people and find out they're going to count calf strikes as significant strikes. Right. <laughs> it yeah. might be a good play because yeah. all those kicks are going to add up to a lot of points in the, that fight. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, he also beat Aldo. He beat Chad Mendes, Darren Elkins. Uh, but his, his win over Max Holloway was unanimous, and nobody after the fight thought that it shouldn't have been that way. Yeah. It was very decisive. He dominated the, the flow of the fight. And really used those calf kicks to keep Max guessing and on edge, and then was able to pick him apart. Uh, it's one of those things that the calf kick. Kevin and I have talked about it off off air a few times. It is becoming so dominant in the UFC right now. It's something that the fighters borderline a problem because of the, the risk of injury for the knees. 
Um, that that's the concern yeah. for me at this point is like, are we going to start seeing so many knee injuries because guys are just uh, going after this calf kick that we lose some of the excitement of the fight? You yeah, know? I like, think I think it's just part of the natural evolution of MMA. But for a while, it was the the leg kick that kick high in the thigh, and that would be you know you'd see guys just pound that all fight long and guys would start to wear down it seems the calf kick does that but much faster obviously and also has more likelihood of injuring the opponent which is why i think that that strike may end up becoming uh i don't know if there's any talk of it but i think that it's 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 a borderline i'm i'm on the i'm gonna go on the record here i think it's a it's a shit strike and i think it should be taken out of the game i think i really think that the calf kick should be taken out of the game it strikes below the knees like that, risking knee injury, causing a fight to be completely impacted by that particular strike is, you know, it's not in the in the spirit of what the sport should be now. Um, you know, that's, that's just my personal feeling on it. I hate the strike. I hate it. I think it should be out of the sport. So I don't think they're going to outlaw it because, I mean, you you've, how often do you see people getting hurt with it, really? You see it impact fights, but that's the whole concept of striking is to impact fights. I think that you're gonna you're more likely to see people come up with a way to neutralize it, just like you know checking a kick. They'll figure out a way. They'll, the sport will evolve to take that out as much of a weapon. It'll still be a weapon, but it won't be as dominant as it has been the last couple of months. And it has been the last couple of months. Gaethje used it like crazy in his fight. Um, Amanda Nunez is notorious, I guess, for, for using this kick. Uh, there's a big thing on ESPN about it uh, this week leading up to these fights. It is a huge weapon for people, and like like the ground, like the uh, the the submissions from the bottom, and then the ground and pound. People are going to have to adapt. Yeah, I I don't like the fact that it's uh, what was the fight just couple weeks ago where the kid still won the fight after he tore his acl from yeah that it wasn't related to a calf kick but um again this is the kind of stuff that i don't like the strike at all i think that it adds zero value it's not a it's not a significant strike i mean but isn't it significant if it's impacting it this much that we're having conversations about it i mean it's clearly significant I understand, but I, I just don't think that it should be part of the game. I don't think that kicking somebody below the knee is something that takes an excessive amount of talent or ability. I think the guy's trained to just kick below the knee now. Yeah. And to me, that is uh, – But now but now, what will happen is the natural counter. Just like in the NFL, somebody comes up with something. What's the natural counter to something that's so low risk? I'm not a – uh, MMA trainer, so I wouldn't be able to tell you, but, but that's you'll see it. That, that's the problem. Is like I, I feel like it's such a low risk kick, kick that has such a high risk of injury that that's where I don't. That's see my problem part, with it. You keep talking about the injuries. I, I don't know of people who've been hobbled by. It. I mean, definitely taken out of fights, but that's the whole concept of the the sport is to take somebody out so they can't continue. I don't want to watch a game that's filled with guys kicking each other in the calf. I, I just don't. I mean, yeah. every fight that I see it happening and being a major impact in the fight, the fight becomes more boring. I don't want that. That's not what I want for my MMA. I like it. I like I, anything new that's creative and different. I'm, I'm a big fan. I mean, they, they took the kick that was above the knee and dropped it below and found that it's more impactful that way. 
it, I mean, to me, it becomes a, a more boring fight that way. Almost, almost every time. Almost every time you, I mean, get you still have plenty it, of it, options. I, here. I, I go back to you know the leg kicks against Rampage Jackson years ago. What, mm. what was a Forrest Griffin against yeah. Rampage, where Forrest Griffin just kicked him in the leg for three rounds and won a decision? Yeah. Like to me, that's a problem. You can't, you can't have a fight. But people evolve to stop that to stuff, neutralize you know? those kicks, and I think of the natural progression it'll happen again people will find ways to check it so it doesn't i hope um, you're right i really do I, maybe, ho- I hope that they find a way to defend against that the solution where, may be just to bum rush them and take them to the ground okay you're gonna do the stupid calf kick i'm gonna take you to the ground you right know, i think we'll see it when gaichi and khabib end up fist fist fighting but what happens when you have a bjj expert who learns how to calf kick people now you've you got a guy who's opponents? who's in uh Exactly where he wants to be. He right. might want to pull guard to begin with. But again, I mean, should we and, penalize and somebody strikers for being out of the game? At, but, at multiple things. Yeah, because you now you're taking striking out of the game. Khabib takes striking out of the game, and people love him. I, He's undefeated. Not I. I, I mean, I don't like it. His <laughs> fights are boring. He takes everyone to the ground and just holds them there. I mean, considerably boring damage. fights. They're they're not fun to watch, and you know, there's it, there's a certain aspect of it that you still want it to be super entertaining. You, you still want the sport to be entertaining. I, I appreciate people who get great at a skill. There's no doubt about that. Sure. But I don't feel like a calf kick is a great skill. I, I really don't. Do you feel like that's something that that someone can be like, oh, this guy's the best calf kicker in the game? Absolutely. I think it's already separating itself from people who are very good at but it. But those are people that those are that's not those aren't people that are great at a skill. Those are people who are in front of everyone else in sure. the curve. But that's right awesome. now. It's cool, too. I mean, I appreciate it, but I think that it's something that maybe should be reconsidered. I I think it's like the spread offense. First people that brought it up, it was amazing to watch, and I don't think this is any different. Watching you take grown men down with kicks to the calf that seems so harmless, but you're just destroying them and making them not able to continue, I think is amazing. And I'm excited to see what people do to counter it. I, I think, think that's what's fun about this sport. I think that as a deep MMA fan, that's a, that's a great take, right? But – the general public is not going to appreciate it, that's for sure. And I think that people like Dana White that are in charge of the UFC are going to say, this sucks. I'm not watching people calf kick each other for three rounds. This is not going to happen here because I'm not going to allow it. And that, that's just how Dana White is in general. I don't think that he'll allow it to continue. It, it, it's particularly the first time that a main event ends with calf kicks, he's going to say, this this got to be changed. Something's got to happen here. I don't know. I, I think that it's just another strike. It's just another strike to someone's arsenal. And it'll be interesting to see if Max Holloway, obviously having lost not, not solely to calf kicks, but a big portion of it to calf kicks, what he comes up with as a solution to that problem. Yeah. Does he look to take Volkanovski to the ground? Does he but it, circle does he a different way? Does he have the skills way? to do that? I'm, I, sure. Uh, Hall- Holloway's skill set, I'm not sure, is really it's, it's BJJ you know, and ser- striking. Yeah. Best served in in like the kind of takedown sure. wrestler, you know, ground and pound role. I think that a wrestler against a guy who's kicking him in the calves is going to absolutely kick their ass. You know, that's not yeah. it's not a good decision for guys. Yeah, you better be good on your back. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you're going. Yeah, you better have BJJ skills because a wrestler is going to put you there. But it's one of those things. I mean. He could have been spending this time getting ready for, for that. I mean, that it was eight months ago that they fought. I'm gonna I'm gonna start reaching out to some uh, UFC guys just Get for this take. topic, just for yeah. this topic, because I think that it's um, and I think it might be a fun podcast for you UFC folks that listen to us uh, to hear us talk about 
the impact of the calf kick in general and, and what's going on here with it. So, yeah. um, fun debate, though, Tom. I enjoyed yeah. it. So, um, let's go to the main event. Ray. Usman and Jorge Masvidal. Masvidal's going to get his teeth kicked in. <laughs> we were talking about this before. Um, Masvidal is on a nice run. Uh, good for him. But this is not historically a guy who is just a winner. He's not or, at this class, Tom. He's, no. he's He's been given this BMF title and this, like, I'm a bad dude. And that's know? a lot due to his own self-promotion and yeah. kind of the new attitude. He, a, he lands a lucky knee kick against Ben Askren. Yeah. I mean, Listen. lucky. It was, it was a well, obviously, th- thought out prior, but it hits so flush yeah. that is not normal yeah, for a knee. Right. It, it, I, I, you know, five seconds. I, I hate to call it lucky, a, a fighter lucky, but that was lucky. And he might have won the fight anyway. Yeah. But he, he was lucky to land that the way that he did. A quarter inch this way, quarter inch that way. He doesn't go down like that. He's sure. not sleeping. And Ben Askren might have given him a hard time. You know, I, I just don't buy this Jorge Masvidal hype. I yeah. love that he stepped in in this situation. Love. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you for ma- redeeming what was going to be a lost card with, with Gilbert Burns being out. Not necessarily a lost card, but a lost main event. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things to like about Masvidal. I like his swagger. I'm always a big fan of some of the guys who, who get it exciting, make it exciting before the fight, get, talk a little bit, um, as long as you can back it up. When you look at his his wins, the last three fights that he's won on his three-fight win streak, he knocked out Darren Till, which is definitely impressive. The uh, quick knee strike, we're just talking about Ben Askren, and then the Nate Diaz fight, um, that fight was not over when the, the doctor had to stop it because of the cut. Diaz was in that fight. We've all seen Nate Diaz take an absolute drumming and just shake it off. I and, think I think Diaz comes back and wins And Compton slap somebody and take the win. So, I mean, that I would love to see them run that back. Uh, hopefully we can do that. But before that, he lost the decision to Stefan uh, Wonderboy Thompson. He had a chance to fight for the title if he beats Damian Maya. Lost that. Uh, this, you know, th- these are not. He's not the greatest of fighters. He's definitely running around on a name that maybe he doesn't have. Uh, don't tell him I said that because you know I don't want any problems. But uh, <laughs> you look at so one of the things Kevin and I do when we're talking about fighters, we've come up with a strategy recently where take out the KOs off the record. You know, KOs are something that, yes, you can be a KO-heavy fighter, and, yeah, you want to factor that into your your projecting of fights, but they're also kind of unpredictable. They're like turnovers almost in, in sports. Mm-hmm. You can be a team that generates more turnovers because you're better at it, but they're still unpredictable. So if you remove his KOs, both wins and losses now, he is 20-11 and 11 as a fighter. Yeah. 20-11. and 11. It's not good. It is not good. And, and he's going against a guy – who in uh, Kamaru Usman, who is eight and zero in decisions, eight and zero decisions, nine and one in fights um, that are not knockouts. Yeah, and, and s- by the way, seven and zero in yeah. fights that are knockouts. And and um, you know, fifteen and zero in his last fifteen fights. Yeah. So he lost his second career fight by submission. He got he got rear naked choked. And then he's won fifteen in a row. He wins decisions. That's what he does. I get that he finished Covington. I just watched that fight today. He barely finished Covington. Yeah. In round five, he caught a tired kid that had ran his mouth for three months leading up to the fight and put him to sleep. Yeah. You know, that. It, 
he's won unanimous decision, unanimous decision, unanimous decision, unanimous decision. KO against Sergio Mojais, unanimous decision, unanimous decision. Like, they're not even in question, Tom. He's a a very smart um, tactician when it comes to striking. You see a lot of strikers who are just out there, throw hard, throw heavy, throw often. That's not his game. His game is more pick my spots, decide when the altercation is going to happen, and then get out of there and get ready for the next one. Uh, Some of his rates for uh striking and everything like that are crazy good yeah i mean give me usman by decision in this fight like i don't know what let, let's see what the numbers bear out yeah the thing that masvidal does have and we again we we're talking about this earlier he has so much power that he does have the chance of catching usman early in the fight especially and hurting him and finishing that fight so the best bets we were talking about are maybe Masvidal round one finish, Masvidal round two finish, and then Usman to win the fight by decision. Kind of hedge your bets a little there. Yeah. That if Masvidal does catch him and 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 end it because he has that power, uh, you know you have that that in your back pocket in case he does get that easy you, knockout. You can get Usman by decision at plus one eighty five. Nice. It's a nice play, right? Um, and you can get Masvidal in round one at plus six fifty and in round two at plus one thousand. So I think you throw fifty bucks on all three of those. Yeah. I, I think you got a shot at coming out on the top side of all this, you know, like uh well you'd you'd be a little short. Thirty thirty yeah. and seventy five. I, I, I would put the more money on the Usman fight. I'd probably let's say I put a hundred on yeah. Usman and then put a fifty each on uh yeah. on uh Masvidal to get the knockouts. You know, I think that's kind of yeah. where I'd go. I, I feel that that's the way Masvidal can win this fight. He's not a technical striker. He's a power striker. And if it goes five rounds and with Usman, I think Usman's going to pick him apart. You know, Masvidal may hit him once and, and drop him, and, and Usman may not be able to recover. So that's why you want to hedge that bet with an early knockout because that's when you're going to get the big payouts. And there it is, folks. The Hammered Sports Podcast. We've... Uh, successfully made it through this podcast despite our uh blood alcohol levels tom yes and uh hopefully it just goes up from here Twelve thirty, the night's a pup the night is a puppy we'll keep on going so big show next week as well we got a big 12 preview hell yeah big 12 let's talk big 12 football how much fun is that big 12 nobody plays old. defense right nobody plays defense score all the points we'll figure it out later yeah um more ufc there's actually two cards next week we'll have to talk about the Memorial Tournament, of course. And uh, starting next week, each week we're going to break down a position in the NFL for fantasy football. So next week we're going to ease into it with Kevin and I each giving our top 10 fantasy tight ends for the upcoming season. Uh, so stay tuned to that. We're going to break down each fantasy position, and then that's going to culminate in a live mock fantasy draft that we're going to broadcast on Facebook. Yeah, and uh, you know, thank you to our sponsors, Lion Global, and the work that they do. Buffalo Dietitian, uh, she continues to provide great content. Uh, we've also partnered with uh, my buddy Jesse Katermis and the 2Q Racing Team at Genesee Speedway. I was on hand this Saturday night and watched them finish second in the in the feature. Uh, great time going over there. Um, I'll send some pictures out here so that you guys can see them. But really fun watching dirt track racing. So. Um, Thanks, everybody, for their support. Really enjoy all of this, and uh, we'll be back with you next week. See ya. See ya.